Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. I hope you had a nice um, Thanksgiving holiday with whatever you did. I hope it went okay for you. Maybe even better than okay. Maybe better than you thought. I just hope it did. I'll talk a little bit about it, but let me just get some stuff done up front here. First of all, my guest on the show is Martin Mull. Martin Mull was in some seminal, is that the word? Some very important comedy shows, some sort of uh, groundbreaking comedy shows back in the day, Fernwood Tonight and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. You've seen him on everything, but a lot of people don't realize he was a huge comedy act. He's a very unique character. He's also a painter. And I've always was curious to talk to him. He seemed like a very sweet guy. He was on, uh, he was actually for years on Sabrina the Teenage Witch, but a very, uh, Renaissance-like guy. You know, we, we, he hadn't picked up a guitar in years and, you know, he saw mine sitting here and we kind of got into it for a minute spontaneously and he was very excited. He hadn't played in a long time. But anyways, it was a, it's a lovely interview with a lovely guy and a very funny guy. He's currently on a, a, a show called uh, The Cool Kids. It's on Friday nights at 8.30, 9.30 Central on Fox. Uh, you can watch full episodes anytime at fox.com. That said, look forward to that momentarily. Other than that, I will be doing a show at the Ice House December 2nd. That's a Sunday. It's uh, going to be a 7 o'clock show, nice and early. You can get it in without fucking up your day too much. Uh, I'm just doing a, a one-off at the Ice House if you want to come. I enjoy doing them down there. It's a hot little room. So 7 o'clock uh, on December 2nd, Sunday, I am doing a, a, ni- a nice hour, a nice uh, full long set at the Ice House. You can get tickets at the uh, IceHouseComedy.com or you can go to WTFPod.com slash tour. There should be a link there sir, for the December 2nd show at the Ice House in Pasadena. It's in Pasadena, 7 o'clock p.m., so you won't even need a sitter that long, if at all. Just leave the kids at home. How old are they? They can handle it. If you want to pick up some WTF merch, there's a Cyber Monday sale across the entire PodSwag site. There's free shipping for every purchase, so go get some WTF shirts or posters or whatever you want at PodSwag.com slash WTF, and it's free shipping today. Free shipping. Does that mean anything to you? I think so. And also, I wanted to mention, uh, Ricky Jay, uh, passed away. Now, Ricky Jay, 
He's known as an actor, and you've seen him in a lot of things, a lot of David Mamet movies, a few Paul Thomas Anderson movies. He pops up here and there, but he was primarily known as a magician and one of the best sleight-of-hand magicians uh, that ever lived, and a, and a, a magician historian. He passed away on uh, Saturday. Now, I don't know a lot about magic, and I don't know a lot about Ricky Jay's magic, but I do know about his acting, and, and I do know that he's always he's always fun to see, especially in Paul Thomas Anderson movies. So as a means of, of tribute here, it's sad when people pass away. I never did a full episode with Ricky Jay, but we do have this little bit from Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, he was he was on the show and uh, and he brought up Ricky Jay, who was in Boogie Nights. And it's an odd little story. It's a weird little uh, memoriam <laughs> or, or tribute. But but it is it was a funny story. And this is me and Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh, he's talking about the film Boogie Nights and Bert and Mark in this little bit are obviously Mark Wahlberg and Burt Reynolds. And he's talking about Ricky Jay, who who passed away on Saturday. Ricky Jay had the obligation when Mark and Bert are in this big fight scene out at the pool. And yeah. He's coming at Mark. He's saying, get out of here. You know, you're high and all this kind of stuff. And Ricky Jay had the job of holding Bert back, which right. is like not a job that Ricky should have. You know, Ricky has these <laughs> magician's hands and yeah. everything else. And Bert started to improvise. And Mark says to, to something like... You know, uh, I haven't been up for two days. He says, you don't look good. You've been up for two days. You've been doing blow, everything else. He says, I haven't been up for two days. And Bert said, nevertheless, you look, you don't look good and I'm not going to shoot you this way. And so every time Bert would say, nevertheless, I kept noticing this, something happened over Ricky's face. I said, what's going on? And he said, I can't. I'm almost gonna laugh. I, I, I'm, whole, I'm suppressing laughter when he says, "Nevertheless," <laughs> and I said, "Why?" And he told me this great story of being at a football game where this um, woman is being introduced to sing the national anthem, and her name is Helen uh, Helen Helen Forrest or whatever yeah. it is. And uh, they said, "Now to sing the national anthem, Helen Forrest," and somebody in the stand screams. Helen Forrest sucks cock. Yeah. And the announcer says, nevertheless. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> it's a long story to tell, but I swear, and every time I see, the, you know, if, if the movie's on TV or I see it, you yeah. can see Ricky Jay when Bert says, nevertheless, just like, <laughs> Because of that trigger. Right. So, so, nevertheless, rest in peace, Ricky Jay. So, I don't know how your your Thanksgiving went, but uh, but I, I was pleasantly surprised. It was a smaller group. Uh, I think this is what what changed things. You know, I got to my mother's a day earlier than I usually do. I spaced out the cooking. Oh, and by the way, I did not mash those sweet potatoes. If you're following, if you're following along, if you're keeping up with the ongoing story of my neurotic bullshit, uh, I didn't mash the sweet potatoes that. That I kept them in mushy cubes, but I have to tell you something. That improvised recipe uh, was the uh, was the hit of the whole dinner. The 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 cubed uh, sweet potatoes in coconut oil and garam masala and a little bit of salt just fucking killed. It did better than the stuffing, which is usually the big hit. 
and I've figured out a way to pace it out. Prepping is the best. If you've got a couple of days to prep, make as much as you can before the dinner. So right when the turkey comes out of the oven and it's cooling, uh, just stick it in there on 200 and warm that shit up for like an hour and then serve it up. And that way you got a little space. There's no panic. You can sit and eat with everybody. But I think the thing that made the difference this year, outside of the fact that everybody is getting older and things are sort of relaxing in that way, my mom and her boyfriend, John, and my aunt and uh, her husband and, and my cousins and their kids, everyone's getting older. But it was really just pretty tight family dinner, this side of the family. There was no friends. There was no extended people from other people's families. It was just uh, it was just the core of this part of my family. And we changed the seating up so there were three tables, but they were all in one room. And there was just something uh, nice and organic about it. And all the cooking was done so everybody could move around. Everybody could talk to each other. But I don't know. It was a very warm and uh, great uh, uh, Thanksgiving. And the turkey, for some reason, turned out fucking awesome. I mean, you know, I usually don't fuck up turkeys. Because I don't know how you cook it, but we get them at this place called uh, Delaware Farms down in Hollywood, Florida. And I think it's pretty fresh turkey. And I don't put nothing in it. I don't put nothing on it. And I don't baste it. I just put it in there. I think at like 375, uh, you know, for like, there's like a 25 pounder. And for some reason, in my mom's oven, it cooked inside three hours. I checked the thigh temperature. I checked the breast temperature. The little thing popped up. And I was like, fuck it. I guess it's done. And I took it out. And maybe it was this. I let it sit for like two hours you know while i was cooking other stuff because i anticipated it would take longer to cook and it was still warm by the time i cut it and it was it was fucking great maybe it was just a good turkey but it just it was just i don't know you never know with that you never there's a million ways to cook turkey and there's a million and one ways to fuck it up it, it, and it just it just turned out perfect, and the company was perfect. My mom was thrilled. My brother was there. I, he had never been to a Thanksgiving at my mother's since she lived down there. I mean, obviously, she, he's seen her, but he's never been there for this family event. So the, I guess it's the first time me and my brother spent a Thanksgiving with my mother since we were fucking kids. Is that possible? It was just uh, it was just all very sweet. Sarah the painter came. She tolerated it. <laughs> No, she had a nice time, but you know, being with someone else's family is, it's a lot. And believe me, uh, my family can be a lot like anybody's family. And there was no political talk. But, uh, all that being said, uh, I hope yours went well as well. Okay. Potatoes. They, I'm glad I didn't mash them. I, I, there wasn't a lot of input from you people, but most of the input was like mash them. I didn't mash them. And I appreciate the input, but I didn't follow it. Yeah, I want your advice, but I don't want to follow it. I got a couple of very touching emails. You know, I don't, I, I don't know what I set out to do here. I set out to do something and I'm doing it, but it seems to have a profound effect on people's lives and I appreciate that. Subject line, thanks. Hey, Mark, this email is long overdue. I read Waiting for the Punch last spring and found it incredibly moving. I'd heard much of the content through the podcast, but the depth of meaning and human connection that came through in the organization and selections hit me hard. I mean that in the best possible way. 
Now I find myself in a different situation. I've been in the hospital for a month, no end in sight, being treated for a stubborn cancer. The nights are a little freaky, and what's been saving me is WTF. When I can't sleep or when the terror creeps in, I dial up an episode. I swear those conversations are all that's standing between me and the abyss. So thank you for the book, and thank you for the podcast. No pressure. But please keep those great conversations coming. I'm counting on them. Best, Kate. Kate, I'll keep doing it, Kate. Get better, Kate. Can you hear me, Kate? Stay away from the abyss. Stay away from the abyss. Stay with us, Kate. I got a great conversation with Martin Mull coming up momentarily. All right? I've I've edited out uh, locations and names on this one, but... But this is one of those other emails that I think deserves some attention because it does share some sort of message in the sense of, of communication and, and people connecting, you know. Subject line, a crazy letter of appreciation. Is, this one's, it's not insanely long, but it's a, it's a nice story. I'm a 22-year-old college dropout, and 12 days ago, I was admitted into a psychiatric hospital after family members had finally discovered my hard drug use while battling an increasing depression and thoughts of suicide. I suffer from major depression disorder, and for the first time in my life, I'm on the right type of medicine in which to control it. While that is a positive note, I've been battling the worst years of my life. After finally receiving a room within the psych ward, I met my roommate, a friendly but laid-back guy in his late 30s. After a day had gone by, I finally opened up and started a conversation with him. He's a singer-songwriter who works at a coffee shop. At that time, he was reading your book, Waiting for the Punch. I'd mentioned to him that I knew who you were and enjoyed listening to your stand-up as well as some of your podcasts. He had told me that a friend of his gave him the book to help during his stay in the hospital. After getting to know each other a little more, I asked him, to let me know how your book was whenever he finished reading. Cut to the next day, he was being released from the hospital. Unfortunately, I didn't get to say goodbye, as he had left while they took us down to the cafeteria for lunch. When I came back to my room, I was in disbelief to see your book on the pillow of my bed. After coming to terms with the kindness for someone he barely knew, leaving a book, a good luck token, I started to read the first page. If things still aren't clear by now, I want to thank you. Your book really helped me in one of the absolute darkest times of my life and hopefully let you know how your book exchanged hands between two strangers in rough times within the psych ward. After five long days, I finally got out myself and I even revisited your album, Thinky Pain, laughing all over again at your sense of humor and unique storytelling. Without sounding too full of myself, I think I'm a Really funny guy and even have hopes of being a comedian one day, although now I'm on antidepressants. I still struggle every day with trying to find a way out, a way out of living in a small shed, being in between jobs, and only having my grandmother and grandfather to help me. Thank you, Mark. P.S. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. He put his name down, but I don't think it's necessary to be specific about any names or locations. Hey, buddy, I, I, I'm I, glad. I'm glad you're out. I'm glad you're properly medicated. And I'm glad that uh, things have turned around a bit. Go try an open mic. See how it feels. It might be the best thing you ever do. It might be the worst, but that might be good too. And uh, and please take care of yourself. Okay? He knows who I'm talking to, even though I didn't mention his name. I just, I just thought I'd protect him. You know? Martin Mull, as I said in the intro, is a, a, a fairly historic comedy figure. He was on two... Very groundbreaking shows at the time, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, and Fernwood Tonight. 
uh, which we talk about. He did a bunch of uh, amazing musical comedy records. He did some, you know, just music records. He's been an actor for years. You'd recognize him if you saw him. He's an accomplished painter. It's what he started out doing. And a lot of people don't exactly know who Martin is. But those of you who do, uh, great. Uh, we're we're going to talk. And those of you who don't, I'm happy to introduce you to Martin Mull. This is me talking to Martin Mull. He's on the new Fox show called The Cool Kids, which is on Friday nights at 8.30, 9.30 Central. You can watch full episodes anytime at Fox.com. This is me and Martin Mull. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Foxed Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcast. Get on the mic, will you? Okay. Get on the mic already. All right. Francis Coppola does this literary magazine. Is it new? Uh, that's about a year old. Uh, he does it, I think, quarterly or something like that. What doesn't Francis Coppola do now? Well, he makes wine. He makes wine. He's doing literary magazines. Anything but filmmaking. <laughs> but he uh, had me do all the... He used all my artwork as the entire... Oh, that's great, thing. So man. That's, so if you want to see what I do as a painter. Oh, that's great. I knew you were a painter because it was interesting... I knew I knew before that though, but I I had Gus Van Zant in here, uh huh, and he like remembers you from college. That's amazing. Did you know that? Yeah, we're both RISDites. But he said you were older. Yeah, well, I'm older than anyone. No, you're not. <laughs> I, I I've definitely had older people. Really? Yes. I don't. Know, I just turned seventy five, and it, and it 
I realized, geez, I'm, I'm starting to get into a fairly rarefied atmosphere. Yeah. But you're one of those guys who, like, in my life, I'm 55. You've just always been there. Like, Martin Mull's always been there doing something throughout I, my entire adult life. Well, I realize I've been doing this business. Forget the painting and all that stuff, but I've been in this show business for 50 years. It's been 50 years? It's amazing. That's wild. Yeah. Where'd you where'd you grow up, though? Where were you born? Uh, born in Chicago, which sounds like the first That's line of the, a blues. It is the first line of a yeah, blues. 1943. You have That's to put when the year born, too. Yeah. That's if yeah. you get the lyric right. That's right. And uh, moved when I was two to a, um, a very uh, small town outside of Cleveland, about 30 miles west. Wow. Why'd that happen? North Ridgeville. My father got a job working for... Uh, the NACA, which is now the NASA, but at that time it was National Aeronautics and something. What was he, an engineer or something? He was an acoustics engineer. He was actually... So you come from sound. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was was an electric nerd. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And did you have that stuff around the house? Uh, He built our first TV. He built it? He built it. It was a three-inch screen, and uh, the console, Mark, was... Easily the size of a refrigerator. <laughs> the three-inch And here's this little friggin' three-inch screen where I learned to love the Cleveland Indians yeah. and uh, the Cleveland Browns and uh, roller derby. And but did, did, Could you buy TVs at that point, or he, did he just fabricate one? I think one? he could. I think he, it was just, uh, first of all, himself. lack of funds and yeah. the challenge. Yeah. yeah, to build a TV. Yeah. And what'd your mom do? Uh, she was a housewife, made yeah. macaroni and cheese. and That was uh, it? That's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. No, She didn't work or nothing? No. No. Oh, that's the way it goes back then. Yeah. Macaroni and cheese was the memory. And the town was so small that we had a six-man football team because there was not 11 seven, uh, senior boys. And and that was true of the other towns in the conference, too. It was all six-man football. <laughs> but it never caught on, six-man football? Didn't catch on, no. <laughs> so you just grew up that outside. So Cleveland was your, was your uh, lifeline? It kind of was, but I never uh, tapped that lifeline. I right. just stayed home, you uh-huh. know, and, you know, raked leaves and jumped in them and climbed apple trees and, and drew constantly, constantly drawing. That was your thing? Yeah. The drawing? Yeah. And you had siblings? I had a brother two years my junior, and then along came a sister later on, 10 years my, my junior. They around? Uh, my brother's up in Oregon. Um Running around, and my yeah. um, my sister is uh, going under the name of Anadea Judith, and she is uh, quite well known in the world of chakras and uh, uh-huh. things of that ilk. She's a, a mystical aligner. Yeah, I um I'm about as cosmic as a doorstop. Yeah, so I I don't <laughs> I don't know much about it to be perfectly honest. Well, nobody does. It's you know it's a it's a combination of things. It's a you know they, you pull a lot of different disciplines of of uh, sort of meditative and healing qualities, and you wrap them up into a profession. Yeah, I'm still of the school that says if it hurts, take an aspirin. Take an aspirin, or, and if it really hurts <clears throat> or it's festering, maybe go to the doctor. See a specialist, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. You, and if it's expensive, get a second opinion. Yeah. yeah. So what? Where? how do you end up uh, like pursuing, because as I said, I talked to Van Zant. You know, how do you get to RISD? Well, um, we moved when I was 15. We uh, left Ohio and went to um, New Canaan, Connecticut, which yeah, is a kind of a is. sleepy yeah. bedroom town for New York. Another uh, en- another weird uh, sound engineer job? Uh, yes, which he lost the minute we got there. Mm. He got fired, so he had to do something else, and we kind of scrambled a little bit. What did he end up doing? I don't recall. <laughs> I think he started his own company or something. I've never been... I'm not a big family guy. No. <laughs> 
<laughs> You're out in your own world? My roots are about like a uh, quarter inch. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but not too deep in the you soil. Ran, you, you, uh, you, uh, you sort of were going to the beat of your own drummer there? Kind of was. Yeah. Kind of always have been. And so that's like the, and we're coming into, like, what is it? The late, it's the 60s. So 60s. Shit, shit is changing. Yeah. I was um, totally, um, I was involved in place kicking, yeah. uh, football place kicking, and pole vaulting. Really? That was the thing? And, and, and drawing. And drawing and painting. Yeah. yeah. That was it in high nice, school. Uh, nice range. Good arc. Yeah. And I was too small and not good enough to be a, get a football scholarship. Yeah. Uh, my pole vaulting, I, I was doing all right. I was winning a few medals here and there, but yeah. it's not really something you make a life of, you know? <laughs> I don't, I don't know any professional vaulters. No. No. <laughs> what happens to the pole vaulters, Martin? What happens I to them? I think they become pole vaulting coaches. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and, or maybe more general coaches. Uh, yeah. I think I can do a few other things. I can watch these kids throw things. They can yeah, <laughs> exactly. And run past me. Not a lot of um, future in the pole vaulting. So, um, what was left was art school and I uh, applied early to RISD. In my junior year, and I I got in, and I said, "Yay, yippee!" And uh, you got in with uh, with drawings. Uh, yeah, you had to do a portfolio drawing of a chair and a yeah. few other things, and whatever work I had. And uh, I got in, and life just changed completely. Well, I have to assume, like you, you know, at that time, what year was that? Did you get like sixty? Sixty one. Oh, really? So it was even earlier than I thought. Yeah. That that so it wasn't. The whole uh, beatnik swat, the beatnik thing was coming to a close, kind of, but the hippie thing hadn't really started. The hippie thing was just starting. It was the start of what I call the folk music scare. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the the institutions and the kids themselves were changing. Like I imagine it was more practically oriented, and then because RISD's sort of well known for being kind of out there. It was pretty out there at the time. It yeah. wasn't. It wasn't terribly practically oriented. There no. were different aspects of the university that were university. It's an yeah. art school. What yeah. am I saying? Not yeah. university. Yeah, there's no. Uh, I've often thought about going to college. Um, <laughs> no mechanical drawing classes. Nothing to prepare. Well, there you. was. There, yeah. there was uh, graphic design yeah, or yeah. architecture or uh, industrial design things that right. actually had a real antecedent to to your work. But yeah. I, I went to the fine arts. I went to you know painting and. And what was like? What was happening? Like I'm always like. I feel like I missed something by missing the 60s as a conscious person. Like, I'm born in 63. <laughs> so that by the time I see or have memories of how the culture was changing, it's probably I'm about 10. Yeah. 72, 71. And right. And seeing the long-haired, you know, I, I aspired to it early on. Right. But I, I, I missed uh, being a grown-up in it. Do you really feel you missed something? I, I do, uh, in a way, because, like, I don't think that culturally it took, it, it, we, you know, I grew up in the, in the sort of aftermath, the undertow okay. of it. So, like, you know, the entire 70s, really, musically and everything, was still sort of coming off of that. Right. And then once it reconfigured itself, it was, you know, with the disco and new wave. So, right. like, it was a, a, Yeah, a, so you didn't get the, uh. I didn't get the crazy the kind fits of. and starts. The yeah. fits and starts that, you know, even, uh, even taking drugs when I was in college was some sort of throwback. Well, I remember the first time um, there was a guy talking about drugs in college, and since everything's on the table, um, yeah. you know, I was in art school during the 60s. How much can I hide? Yeah, you no, know. yeah. Well, it's a- um, I was trying to learn a thing on guitar called Travis picking. You know what that is. It's where your thumb is independent playing. I a- wish I could do that. Can, did you do it? Yes. You- oh, yeah. But I couldn't. Yeah. And there was a guy named David Blue. Yeah. Double Eagle Dave, David Blue. <laughs> Double Eagle. Double Eagle David Cohen was his name. Yeah. Also David Blue. He yeah. was a folk singer, friend of Dylan's and yeah. all these things. Used to frequent uh, the um, the mess hall where we all ate at RISD. Did he go to school there? No. He was just a <laughs> hanger on and came in to play guitar. Because <laughs> right. after, after dinner... Um, 
all the guitars would come out, and you'd have like Folk Haven there. Right. So how long were you playing guitar at this point? We missed. That, I uh, started maybe when I was about eighteen when oh, I went late. to college. Yeah, because you can't be in art school and not play guitar. You gotta have something. To yeah, exactly. You have show to off. Grow your hair. Have a pipe. Yeah, smoke oh, yeah. a pipe. You had a pipe. Yeah, sure. Some Borkum and Bork and riff. Yeah, that, that's it. Mixture number sixty nine, I believe it was, uh -huh. and. Um, and I was telling, complaining to him about not being able to get this damn thumb to do this yeah, thing because yeah. it has to be independent yeah, of, of the know, rest of the stuff. Would be I like know. Chet Atkins. I, yeah. He said, "Do you want to learn it in five minutes?" I said, "Sure." He said, "Come with me." Yeah. And this is how clandestine it was at the time. We went up to Roger Williams Park, which was a part of Providence, underneath a statue yeah. of Roger Williams with his hand out over the city. Yeah. Underneath some pine needles in yeah. a tiny little pastilles box <laughs> is about a three-quarter inch long roach. Yeah. And he said, take this back to your room, smoke it, and I guarantee you'll learn to do it. Yeah. Um, I did, and I did. <laughs> really? That was and it? To, and to this day, it's still my favorite way of playing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm still trying. Do you, uh, so do you use to one finger or more than more uh, than one on the on the bottom more, than, more one. than one yeah so you can go one on each string yeah, kind of deal but the thumb is in, absolutely independent so how do you how did you do it just repetition repetition the yeah. kind of repetition one can get into when one is in that yeah state. yeah yes. it, it would be really high and focused yeah so that's a that's a well is that the uh, the the most important thing you learned in the sixties? Uh, musically, it was certainly <laughs> right up there, but mostly I I learned that um, you know painting is something you can be married to you mm. know and and really that there's a whole there's a lifetime of work to be done there. I well it's well it's interesting because my my girlfriend <clears throat> is an abstract painter mm -hmm. and uh, you know and she does well for herself and she's you know that's a, that's that that world of abstraction is something that I didn't know a lot about uh and now I know more about it. And uh and it is a life and it is Absolutely. sort of an, an ongoing kind of adventure because the challenge is is always confronted right there with you and on that canvas. Right. And well, the, you know, you, you can't really even separate abstraction from representational either because representational painting is abstract in itself in that what you're doing is you are taking something that is essentially to be perceived as three dimensions right and you are making it into two right so once you do that you've abstracted the image sure absolutely right I, but I, I i'd imagine if you talk to an abstract painter there there'd be some subtler nuances between the two um yes and no the yeah. the, the formalist uh, requirements of making a good painting are yeah. the same right right you know, and what are those balance um, composition? Yeah, all of those, all That's of those true. buzzwords. Yeah, balance composition and so forth and so on. Nicotine. I do the same. You do? Absolutely. What do you got? Uh, number two. Oh, what do you have? Four. <laughs> Four. I sweat. Uh, I break them though. Okay. I, I do just, two. I just got back on. Them, I do dude. two. I just. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers to you. Oh yeah, it feels great. I was off them. I was off everything for about. Uh, Were you a smoker? Well, yeah, I was a smoker for a long time, but then I was hooked on these things for like eight years. Uh huh. And then, uh, and then I got off everything, and yeah. life got slow. Slow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think nicotine is bad for you. Well, I start. What happens to me is I. St were you a smoker? Oh God, yes. Yeah. Well, I start smoking. What happened was uh, I got off everything, and it's always a cycle where I'm like, I'm gonna have a cigar. That sounds nice. Mm -hmm. And then within a month, I'm like two a day. I'm like I'm wheezing, and I'm like, this is. Can't be good. Can't be. so then I I said I get better get back. Just gonna have a couple of lozenges to get through getting off the cigars. Then I'm like, why did I ever stop? This? Yeah, 
but now they're in my mouth all the time. I go to sleep with them sometimes. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> Do you? Be honest. Uh, no. No, not like that. No? Oh, really? No. Good for you. Reining it in. Cigarettes and cigars was my thing. Oh, cigars. And then I had to quit it all about three years ago. Yeah, why? What happened? Uh, they found a little something under my tongue that they had to cut out. Oh, shit. Yeah, so. Oh, so, well, good. Well, good. To, so everything that's fun is gone. <laughs> we got the lozenge. Yeah. The lozenge, they'll, they'll deliver. They, yeah. In the morning when, you know, they deliver. Yeah. No dope, no booze. Really? Yeah. Me neither. That's almost 19 years. It's 19 years I just had. Yeah, I'm, th I'm about 30. Without no booze, no well, I, dope. I didn't quit booze. I finished early. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's yeah. like these kids who go to college yeah. and they finish in two and a half years yeah. to get four years. I got a lifetime supply of drinking done <laughs> in about forty-five years. <laughs> so okay, but they, but you're back. You're in RISD. You learn how to thumb pick. You're yeah, surrounded by folkies. And so you're there from what, 61 to 65? 61 to 65 undergraduate. 65 I spent in uh, half of it in Rome on what they call a European honors program where they sent the, you know, you paid extra to be so honored. But, yeah. you know, they sent you to Rome and um, no thesis requirement and automatic 4.0 average and everything like that. Did you paint there? Yeah. Yeah. So you wandered around Rome, you looked at the ceilings, you looked at the looked walls, at you looked at the sculpture. Absolutely. It's sort of an amazing place, isn't it? It is, especially if you go over like I did with only 400 bucks in your pocket to last a year. <laughs> so yeah. I ended up playing folk songs in trattorias and uh, for my bisteca. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, and... Um, and learned a little bit of the language and uh, kind of hung out, got a motorcycle, did the whole thing. And at that time, it must have – everything was smaller and better then. Seems. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's a lot more mental space around. You yeah. know, like, you know, people were <clears throat> sort of interacting as people, you know, and not uh, – there's no, you know – Well, there, one thing that wasn't that there is now – I mean, I hadn't thought about this until you just said it. There was no social media back That's then. That's right. Exactly. There was just like, you know, I, I do a bit of my uh, my stand-up now. I, used to, I say, uh, you know, back in the day before the internet and, and uh, cell phones, we had to do things like – Wait. Yeah. <laughs> and if you were actually waiting for something, that's all you could do. You yeah. Just wait. Yeah. And then I'll stand there and I'll wait on stage and you create this space and you realize it was all around. Well, it's interesting you say that about waiting on stage. Toward the end of my alleged musical career, yeah. um, I, I always travel with my furniture. I could tell you why later. So I'd have my furniture out there. I'd come out, I'd sit down and I said to the audience, we have a terrific show for you tonight yeah. and there's no sense rushing it yeah and i would just sit there and have a scotch and a cigarette and talk to my piano player about uh, our flight arrangements for the next day and do nothing and, and, for three and a half minutes and the people would scream for uh, mad or, or no, no laughing. they love it yeah it's laughing because waiting is something that was a treat you yeah know? yeah and that space it creates a, an interesting space i agree and and also that but i mean to get you know existential about it i mean that's really all we're doing is waiting mm -hmm. and, and trying to you know, occupy ourselves. Oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, while, while we wait. Well, in a way, that's kind of uh, not to get the author's message in here, but the show I'm doing for Fox, the Cool Kids, yeah. is about a, a retirement home. Which, when you think about it, that's the big wait. Yeah. Well, that's when it becomes like unavoidable. Like you know, that's what we're doing. Yeah. You know? 
and and but it, it's more obvious if you're 65 in a retirement home oh, that for that's sure. what you're doing. But if you're 22 in your uh, first year of grad school, yeah. you're also waiting. That's right. And you know, you're, I mean, on some level, we're all waiting, but that's and what we're waiting for is is disconcerting. So everything in, in during the waiting uh, is an avoidance of the inevitable, and you try and get as much done as possible. Exactly, <laughs> and that still holds true with yeah. this show. That's what these four people are doing: is trying to be as youthful and as irresponsible as they possibly can during their during the uh, yeah the final, during the two minute warning. And, you do, and, and in the show, do you like the do, does everyone have relationships that are weird with the grandkids or with the kids? Like, does that come up like that they've been put there? <laughs> well, actually, I had a one one line in, in in the pilot where the lady says to me, "You know, you guys are here uh, of your own volition." Uh huh. And I look at David and I say, "My God, my kids are liars." <laughs> <laughs> you know, and we had an episode where Leslie uh, Jordan um, finally has to come out to his son, who's thirty something, that he's right. gay. <laughs> so um, that's yeah, good. It's 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 fun. And you're working with Vicky Lawrence too. Vicky Lawrence, unbelievable. I, I haven't seen her in years. She's still funny. She's very funny. She's so, got all her chops. It's amazing. It's amazing. Cool. This is. I I look at this job like. You know, as I say, I've been doing this for 50 years. If I've been selling shoes at Nordstrom's for yeah. 50 years, it, they'd say, okay, Mr. Mall, we're going to retire you now. Here's this lovely gold watch. Yeah. You know, <laughs> maybe. <and> a certificate. <laughs> yeah, maybe. right. Um, I think that's what this show is for me. I get to play with these monster actors. Yeah. And just goof. Yeah. You know, but you've been like, you know, you've been a, a, a working, you know, actor for, you know, decades. I mean, you're I one know, of them. It's weird. You're one of the comedic guys. Because I never intended on it. Well, that's what I'm, that's what I was trying to figure, you know, because like, so you're in Rome and you're right. playing folk songs, you're riding around on a motorcycle, maybe getting a little painting done, learning right. things, right. Like having, you know, your mind blown by beauty. Because that's one thing I noticed about Rome is like Italy in general. You go there and it's like it doesn't disappoint. It no. delivers on all of it. It's it actually is foreign. It's and it's amazingly beautiful, right? And just those layers of like you know uh, Christ infused art, <laughs> right? Everywhere. And all those cypress trees you thought Da Vinci cypress invented, trees. they're Amazing. real. Yeah. So you come back from that and you're like, I'm going to be a painter. Yeah. And, and but you're playing guitar pretty serious. If you can playing, come pick. playing guitar pretty pretty well at that point. Um. So what happened? I went. And to ma- I decided to get my masters. So I got my masters. It Where at? RISD. Same, same you went place. Back. You stayed there forever. Yeah. You were like a guy who was always there. People well, came a, and go. I had a girlfriend there that we were living together, and I didn't want to leave her, and I wanted to stay on. And they made. They gave me a. Um, um, uh, I was a teaching fellow, yeah. which basically uh, absolved me of tuition requirements. Oh, so you got to... And I was supposed to just help out a drawing teacher. It turned out they were shorthanded, so I ended up having my own drawing class. Uh-huh. I was teaching sophomore drawing uh-huh. um, and for two years, and I got my master's. And then, oh, my God, there's a Vietnam War going on. There's a draft. There's That's something right, I can no longer hide in academia. What do I do? How old are you at that point? Uh, were you draftable? I w- yeah, I was 22. Oh, really? Three. 60, like what are we, 67 now? Yeah, 67, 8, yeah. 9. Uh-huh. And so um, I went down and did my little test, and they were um, they were smart enough to see that I was not military material. Oh, yeah? So they, Based on what? Yeah. <laughs> based on just, I don't know, my, uh, my attitude, my sentences, whatever, my look. Really? Yeah. So what happened was that they would bring people in from 
RISD, who were all these just raging hippies, we all had hair down to our ass, you know, and so forth, and um, and looked like we hadn't been to bed in three days. And that happened in the mid-60s that yeah. started to happen? Yeah. yeah. And then you'd have the other guys who were working for um, tire companies in, yeah. in Providence who couldn't wait to go over. Right, right. And so they would fill their quotas quickly and could get rid of a, a lot of us. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's leave the art students. Like, there. I had a friend at, at Brown University, which was a sister college, yeah. who uh, took a a rhesus monkey out of a jar in um, one of the labs up there, dried it off, dead many, yeah, many dead decades, monkey. went down to the draft board, threw it on the desk, and said, we want to enlist. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, really? It was things like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they didn't I've, take either of them. I've, I've never heard that one. No. I heard the, the Ted Nugent story about shitting himself and going oh, in there. Jesus. There was that, that uh, yeah. or the peanut butter trick. Well, I had a friend in, in, at RISD who basically for a month peed on his jeans. Right. And then wore those in and he right. said i convinced them i'm crazy yeah <laughs> and i thought well you're pretty much convinced it's, me too it, it's, <laughs> <laughs> with your with your focus on this project yeah 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 it seemed like an art piece looking back it could have been it a could have been yeah. piece it sounds like he could have been you could have still been at RISD now if you had stayed in that game if i'd stayed in that game what happened was um i put together a band called soup Mm-hmm. Um, I had played in some copy bands and, you know, just playing guitar yeah. and doing uh, Hold On, I'm Coming and Give Me Good Lovin' and so sure. forth, the Brown, Brown University mixers. And, yeah. And so, and then I put my own band together with my own songs called Soup. And, um, it was pretty, it was halfway between a band and a happening. Right. Which so, were, which were also going on back then. Jim Dine and all those kind of things in New York. Oh, right. Yeah. Sure. And, um, and, and actually, probably more than a nod to the Bonzo Dog Duda Band, which is still one of my favorites. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if I, I've heard this name before. Twice Neil Innes and Vivian Stanshaw. That's where I just heard like it. That. Yeah, I just heard that from fucking Eric Idol. Eric, yeah, my buddy. Yeah, he was just in here. Oh, like uh, three days ago. Oh, okay. He's got the new book out. What did I do? Oh, with that's it? right. It in the house, right? Yeah, and he meant because I was talking about Neil Innes for a second. And he had that band, but I didn't know anything about it. I just sort of nodded my head, like you know. Well, oh, they were yeah. doing funny songs. Okay, so like when you're so we performed at RISD a couple times, and then uh, I also was in the Double Standard String Band, which sure. was uh, an old timey bluegrass band. And just uh, guy, you really learned how to work that thumb, huh? Yeah, and uh, we were. Uh, started going to the Club 47 in Boston, which was a folk club, and we'd get, go up there. Who'd you see? Who was working? Um, we were. Yeah. The double standards. But like, band. who were the, the other cats who were? Oh, you would have Judy Collins and Bob Dylan and Reverend Gary Davis and, That's right. uh, um, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, people like that. They come mm-hmm. up with Eric Idle too. Why did they come up? Oh my God. It's like, uh, it's, yeah. Well, anyway. they were, they were my opening act at one point. Sonny really? Terry and Brownie McGee. And I thought if ever there was, uh, putting a, a cart before a horse, you know, why should they be opening? So, okay. So you're doing these bands. So the music you're writing, is was always funny music. Yeah, I tried to be, and I got a deal. I actually uh, was out of um, RISD, got my master's, poor as a church mouse. I actually had an electric. My upstairs neighbor uh, loaned me an electric blanket because I had no heat in my $35 a month apartment. Oh, a and plug it was in a, electric a wire blanket? going up the stairs to his electric because I had no electric either. Oh, yeah. And at that point, I finally got my first deal with uh, Folkways. Folkways, yeah, I just got some records from them. And a producer named Sam Charters. So, you, okay, so you got the deal with Folkways. Couldn't have been a big deal, but get no. you, did you get you your own blanket or? 
Yeah, I had a, a, a couple of bucks, and I moved to Boston, stayed on a guy's couch until I got a job in a recording studio being a machine operator. Where in Boston were you living? Uh, I was living in Back Bay on yeah. Mar- Marlboro Street. Oh, yeah. and um, Brownstone? Yeah. No, basement. Oh, basement. Brownstone basement? Yeah, it was the ba- <laughs> one-room basement, and I got completely robbed there. They took all my guitars, all my everything. Uh. All I found, they even took the clothes off the hangers. And really? They took the hangers, and wow. the only thing that was left in the apartment, the the door was off its hinges. Yeah. I found my headphones on the front steps of the building, so that was my tip-off that something was wrong. <laughs> Went in, the only thing they left, I swear this is true, Mark, were false eyelashes floating in the toilet. What is it? Was that their signature? I guess. <laughs> I've so, heard about robbers shitting on so, beds. Yeah, so like, like any responsible citizen, I yeah. contact my local gendarmerie and yeah. say to the policeman, I say, uh, this is what happened. He said, oh, boy. He said, well, if you find out who did it, call us. <laughs> he said, don't try to apprehend them yourself. That's the disappointing thing about justice. and or turn, Like, you know, cops can do what they can do, but you, know, you watch enough TV, you think the cops are going to be working on your case. Yeah. At least he was honest with you. Yeah, yeah. we got a 1040 over on Marlboro <laughs> Street. Yeah, We're going to no. get a few guys on this. We'll let you know in a week or two. <laughs> yeah, dreams on. Are. Yeah. All right, so you get robbed. But, the, but are you touring as this band? I mean, is, are you playing no, out? No. no. Oh, so no. you get the record deal. It goes nowhere. Right. So I'm writing a bunch of little songs here and there, here and there, here and there. And, yeah. And finally, uh, one of the songs I wrote, it was an answer song. Yeah. Which uh, people don't do anymore. But when you... Um, it's got a refrain that the audience does or what? No, where you answer somebody else's song. Johnny Cash had a song called A oh, Boy yeah. Named Sue. Right. I wrote a song called A Girl Named Johnny Cash. Okay. That's funny. Ended up... Placing it with Warner Brothers music, yeah, and it actually made the charts. And because of that, I got a writing writer's deal with Warner Brothers music. It okay, was, it was a hundred and five bucks a month. So, what is it like? What What is a deal with Warner music at that? What are we talking like? Nineteen seventy. <laughs> Seventy-one. Um, yes, it would have been about nineteen seventy-one exactly. And what does that mean that they that you they're like you know write us songs, kid? Yeah, exactly. Write songs, send them in, see if we can do anything with them. Well, needless to say, the songs I was writing, there was nothing they could do with them. But there are they? Would you call them? I don't think they're they're. I guess it's kind of novelty songs, but I mean, you evolved into something else, into a, a sort of a, a, a kind of musical comedian but i mean at that time would a, a girl named johnny cash be a novelty song i would have to say it would be a novelty song i certainly wouldn't call it a classic right um and um it's not something people would play at their wedding right but but that but the, the in the market for a novelty song was like you know if you if you got one going you could make a you know you could make a few bucks pretty quick. Oh, Ray Stevens right. did really well. The with streak, guitars in and things like that. Didn't he yeah. do the streak? Yeah, yeah. Um, but what happened was I ended up amassing this, um, let's say, an axe worth of songs that I had written, which they didn't do anything with. And I yeah. thought, well, I'll do something with them. And a few people around the studio um, in Boston on. Uh, it was Petrucci and Atwell was the studio. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, there were some people that, um, caught wind of it and said, you know, I like this stuff. I, why don't you go out and play a few places? And I did. I went yeah. to a couple little coffee houses and did my stuff. And With pe- the band or just you? Just me. Yeah. And since I was a dreadful singer, I, I, I think, you know, pitch was not my, my forte. Yeah. Um, 
I would do these kind of longish introductions yeah. and, and it's kind of an uh, apologies almost <laughs> afterward. And it turned into a comedy act of sorts. Right. And all of a sudden I'm doing this act and I put a little band together and I got a manager. Yeah. And they, uh, and that manager was handling a, a singer named Jonathan Edwards at the time. Sure. Yeah. A big folk singer. Had a song called Sunshine. Yeah. Or something like that. And it was Phil. Was it Sunshine? That's him? Yeah. Uh huh. And, um. He's he, a Boston guy. Yes. Yeah. He, and he was with Capricorn Records, yeah. which was Phil Walden. And, uh-huh. uh, he had the Allman Brothers and so forth and so on. And my manager said, I want you to come see this band. And it was my band. Yeah. And, um, afterward he said, it's just terrible. Yeah. This is terrible. <laughs> terrible. Yeah, perfect. Turned out what happened was the sound system was so bad you couldn't hear any lyrics. Uh huh. Which was what my whole thing was about. Right. So we finally sent him a tape and he said, why didn't you have me go see this band instead? I love <laughs> these guys. And I got signed to Capricorn Records, made a record and, uh, and it did well. This is the first record, the 1972. First, yeah. It's a lot of you doing stand-up, really, and talking really, about... Really was. Yeah, yeah. But where it got lucky was Underground Radio, which at that time, there was such a thing, like FM. WBCN in Boston. That was underground. When I was in Boston, because I spent, I went to college there and started a comedy there, BCN was like okay. big. So you're talking about FM, FM, just a guy you know, right. sleeping a bit. Right, right. <laughs> playing all sides of records. Smoking whole dupes yeah. and just sitting there and playing... Yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah, playing James Brown over and over again right. if he'd like to. Yeah. Um, yeah, and what happened was I uh, started selling some records and getting some following. And one of the greatest As things a live act. was it got it got heard by, if that's a correct sentence, yeah. uh, a guy named Stanley Dorfman in London, who was a British producer for BBC, said, I love this album. I want to do it live on, on the BBC. I said, well, there's even an orchestra. He said, that's no problem. We can do it. <laughs> we can do an orchestra. So I went over there and... Um, First thing he does is uh, put me together with Derek Taylor, who yeah. was the Beatles publicist, and, wow. and uh, Harry Nilsson for a very, very long um, red wine-fueled lunch, which finally- uh, What was he doing there? Drinking. We, in we in were, London? We were both drinking, yeah. Um, Harry was there, I think, working on some stuff, yeah. and was tight with Derek, and, so, yeah. and just they had the feeling that the two of us would hit it off, and we did quite well. But- um, that was my introduction, introduction rather to actually having my stuff done for real in uh-huh. front of people and on a television and and meeting you know a Beatle guy and yeah. uh, Harry and yeah and it just kind of went from there. So when they did it on the BBC, it was just a live performance for the radio. Uh, it was for television. Oh, oh, for television. Yeah. So now was Harry there for the show? Uh, I believe he was. Yes. Did you stay friends with him throughout? Yes. Uh, in fact, that's how I met. Uh, John Lennon yeah. actually was that Harry said, when I get to New York, I'll give you a ring and we'll have a drink. And he he gave me the, uh, he said, I'm over at the, I don't know, some hotel. And he yeah. said, room 15. Yeah. Knock on the door. We'll yeah. have a drink and knock on the door. And John yeah. Lennon answers the door. <laughs> and uh, I was pretty blown away. And, you know, because I'm still just a, this kind of starry-eyed kid. You yeah. Know? You were a painter years before. Yeah. 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 I'm not even 30 at this point. And, uh, or maybe I am. And, um uh, so I went in and watched Lawrence Welk with him and Harry and uh, Yoko and and John didn't say a word until the Lawrence Welk show was over and he just looked at the screen and he said, "He's got a good gig." Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's hilarious. Uh, so now, okay, so you're hanging out with Harry Nelson, who, uh, what an astonishing. Uh, Songwriter and singer, that wonderful guy. Wonderful songwriter, wonderful singer. Yeah, uh, his voice is like 
fucking beyond, man. Yeah. I, like, there's a, did you watch that weird documentary? The, I did. What did you think of that? I, I liked it. Um, but I thought it could have gone other places as well. Like I, 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 it was a little disconcerting the 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 insinuation that uh, John Lennon, uh, you know, sought to uh, destroy his voice. I, I don't think so at all. I don't. Th- I think that was no. imposed on that. I think so too. I think yeah. in a lot of documentaries, what you end up is the documentarian, if there's such a word. Yeah, there shouldn't be. Um, has a, a, a predisposed attitude towards something and does everything they can to prove their point as that's, opposed to discovering things. That's true, yeah, yeah. I like I like more things like capturing the Freedmans where you go in looking for one Oof. thing and find out yeah. a whole nother. Did you see did you see that? Yeah, that that was something that one. That was great. That guy, the 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 clown son. Yeah. Yeah, he was sort of around New York comedy for a while. Yeah. yeah we we would see him around. Wow. But did you see the one about the triplets who were separated at birth, the new one? No. You should go see it. I don't know if it's still in the theaters, but it's genius. Oh, I wait for Netflix. I don't, oh, yeah. oh, I don't go out. It's genius. It's okay. uh, uh, yeah, it's great. Triplets separated at birth. Yeah, I do. It it was like it's a crazy story that goes places you would never imagine, oh, and it's very yay. provocative on a few different levels. All right, so when do you like? Okay, so after England, you're back. You're hanging around with John Lennon and Harry Nelson. When do you be- become destroyed by show business, Martin? What do you mean destroyed? <laughs> yeah, when, um, do you, when, well, do you, when do you enter the machine out here? I was uh, touring all over the place with the band, or yeah, just you with my with the band uh, for a lot of it. Um, sometimes just myself. Yeah. Sometimes uh, just myself and Ed Wise, my piano player. Uh huh. Doing and, these comedy nights. Yeah, and and doing all sizes of small comedy clubs, uh, small folk clubs. Yeah. Big. I opened for Liza Minnelli on a tour. I mean, big. We were getting to the point where we could fill 2,500, 3,000-seat halls. It's interesting about comedic acts is that that used to be the gig was to open for people. Mm -hmm. Did you do a lot of that? I did a lot of opening, yeah. yeah. Um, But I also did a bit of headlining. Right. And and then you'd have packages like Steve Martin and I would do the Steve Martin Mall Show, where depending on the city, who was ever uh, bigger, it was usually him. Um, What year was that? Seventy-two, three. Oh, really? Yeah. So you you guys were because I noticed that you know looking at the the sort of uh, chronology of things that you know that it seems that the type of comedy that Martin became huge for was something that you were doing for a while. I think we were both doing it at the same time. I think it's like that. What do they call it? Zen poetry, where two people, sure. two different parts of the world, will come up with the same slogan or something. Um, I, I know when we first met, um, I've told the story a hundred times, but I'll tell it again. He was, it was a crowded, uh, hallway backstage at the Great Southeast Music Hall. And he was tuning his banjo sitting there. And there was just enough room for me to get by him with my guitar and my case. I'd not met the man, but, uh, he certainly, uh, his reputation preceded him. But this is long before he broke big. Before really yeah. big, he had been on the Smothers Brothers show and sure. done some things like that. So I knew of his work and knew how how good he was. Yeah, and found myself really unable to even come up with a how do you do when I walked by him. I just walked by and yeah. didn't say anything because I was intimidated. Yeah, it turns out he said the other day uh, when we were doing uh, something that he was intimidated too. But I find that amazing. He still hang out? Oh yeah, 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 and. uh I got about four feet past him, and I hear, oh, pretty good. How are you? (laughs) (laughs) At which point I broke down laughing, and he did too, and we have been friends for close to 50 years now. That that makes sense, that double bill. That must have been fun. It was really fun. Because you're both very different. I did that a lot, and 
and the other thing about me was I wasn't a comedy act, really. I was a music act. I, you know, I get that, you know, because like, uh, you know, I like in my as as a child, you know, comedy, mu- musical comedy was not my bag, really. You know, like I was more of right. a stand up kid. Okay. You know, and even with, uh, y- you know, but like listening to your records now, like I don't know, maybe they were a little too sophisticated for me when I was a younger man. But I, they strike me. I mean, I get you're a musical act, but those are comedy records. They they are. But uh, let me ask you this: What was Spike Jones? Well, I, I would, I would, he was a, a musical comedy act. That's what I would have to say I was. In fact, oddly enough, the very first time I ever saw live music performed ever yeah. as a child was my parents took me to see Spike Jones in Cleveland. Really? I realize that now. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been how I thought music should be performed. You did, you know, funny songs, but you were not like a, a musical parody guy. No. Like, but and when you did do something like Dueling Tubas, which was a hilarious take on something that became some sort of weird national phenomenon. Right. Uh, but that's not parody, really. No, no. I, I didn't do the go the way Al Yankovic right. goes. No, I, I would write my own songs. And uh, and sometimes they'd be somewhat serious, et cetera. But and, a lot of the things you were doing, like structurally, were, were like Steve Martin in that, you know, you'd, you'd talk for a while. But, I mean, he was obviously doing jokes, but you were doing comedic monologues mm-hmm. in, like, you know, long form. Right. And sort of like, then you'd ease into the song. Exactly. So when did you move to L.A.? Um, about 75, I think. Oh, really? Something like that, 74, so 75. So you stayed in Boston? No, no, I was in New York. Oh, okay. And um, made another album there. You play in the bottom line and that kind of stuff? I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you made the album that I was talking about in New York? Uh, no. The first I, live record? No, I made that in L.A. Oh, I perfect. What do, is it? I'm per, per, uh, uh, that was just called Martin Mull and His Fabulous Furniture in Your Living Room. Oh, that was, the, that was that record? Yeah. So the furniture thing? Yeah. That came about while I was still in college. I was getting these jobs with these, I told you, these copy bands. And, big, and, and that was back when... Bands used to set up like the Beatles did across like a 50-foot stage. You'd have a stack of marshals, and you'd yeah. stand in front. And, and all you hear is you. You yeah. don't hear anybody else. And it's just cacophony. You right. know, and it's noisy, and it's loud, and you're yeah. trying to do, hold on, I'm coming at top <laughs> volume. And, <laughs> yeah. and then you go back to your house at night after the gig is over, and you go, ah, you have something to maybe alter your sensibility. Yeah. You have a beer or two. Right. And you both pull out your acoustic guitars and start playing. And I thought, now this is music. Right. And I thought, what's the difference? Furniture. So um, <laughs> when I started going out actually doing my little act, um, this would be like 71, 72, um, I actually took my living room furniture in the back of my Ford Pinto and uh, set it up set it up on stage so that I would feel at home and have the same vibe I had when I was, so it would be more like music. And you did that when you were opening as well? Absolutely. And then when I started touring, I couldn't very easily put the uh, couch into baggage claim. So right. uh, I would have a writer in my contract that said, you have to go to the Salvation Army, get the shittiest couch you can find, an end table, a lamp, <laughs> and so forth and so on. And I'd always have it on stage. So you'd have them go spend 100 bucks yeah. on a full uh, living room set. Exactly. So when you move out here, uh, that you're coming out here on the Fabulous Furniture album, mm-hmm. right? And and then like, what's it like here in like 75? 
Um, it was pretty crazy, I guess. I, I was just all about the music at that time. Now, was your reputation preceding you? You had met Steve Martin already? Yeah, so we were you had, So you had a little cachet in terms of like the Troubadour and that crew and everybody? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I kind of, um, I knew most of the people that were making music at that time or, yeah? or, or funny. But, Did they play uh, on your records ever? Uh, let's see, on... Um, on uh, one record, the record, I think it was I'm Everyone I Ever Loved. Let's see, Tom Waits. Is... I was just going to ask you that. He's the guy at the bar. Yeah, Tom Waits is in that. Melissa yeah. Manchester's in that. Uh, Ed Begley's in that. Rob Reiner's in that. Billy Crystal's on that. A lot, of, a lot of friends would come in and do little bits and pieces. Begley is everywhere. He's everywhere. Always. Yeah. I just saw him last night on Better Call Saul. Yeah. I've interviewed him, too. He's like this weird, zealot-like character in the Hollywood yeah. Hills. And he, he, it seems like there's not a role he can't do and won't do. Yeah. He's like the Michael Caine of, tele, of television. Or something. He's definitely got a very unique, funny presence. But when I talk to him- I, I like mean, him a lot. You know, growing up here and having that experience of being, you know, he was like, he was everywhere. Yeah. Man. And, you know- for yeah, you know, whatever reason. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> yeah. So I had yeah all, a lot of friends and uh, lived in the Hollywood Hills and so forth and so on. Yeah, and was it still primarily music? Yes. So how many? So you put out like when did you, when did it happen that how did you enter, you know, the world of uh, you know becoming a comedic actor? Well, I was getting kind of sick of the road. You so know? you were really a touring act. Yeah, I was, and. Um, I, I was with a, a management group that also handled Louise Lasser and was at the same time a huge fan of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. You were? Yeah, I used to. So that was already on before you yes. got the role? Yes. I, I remember coming home once and turning it on to see what the hell is this show. And it, the first scene was the grandpa coming in to the kitchen saying, where the hell's the peanut butter? And the first place he looked was in the dryer. And I said, I like this show. <laughs> and I became a fan. And when I found out that... uh uh, my management uh, company was actually handling Louise Lasser and connected to the show. I said, Look, any way I could maybe get a job as a writer on, 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 on Mary Hart. I remember seeing it because I was young, and I, I, I'm not sure I quite understood the comedy because that was like 70, what the hell was it, like 76. So I was yeah. 13. Yeah. It was on late. It was, right. a, it was a riff on a soap opera. But I right. remember like Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Yeah. It was very uh, off center. It was it was it was a great show, and yeah, it was. It was like it was sort of groundbreaking. Exactly. Yeah. So so this move this show was like sort of groundbreaking. It was weird. It was a new type of comedy. It was a satirical soap opera. It was right. like late at night. Norman Lear was involved. Right. right? So and, I went and asked him. Uh, you know, we had a long, nice meeting about an hour or so with who? To, with Norman. Oh yeah. And to be a writer at the end of which he said, "We don't need any writers." He said, "But it's nice meeting you." Boom. Man. And six months later, I got this call to come in and read for a part or that they had offered me the part. I can't even remember. Yeah. Because I'm at that age where the fact checker between sure. my imagination and my memory is yeah. gone. Right. It's gone. Of so, course. So if okay. I lie, it's it's forgivable. No one's going to call you on it. No. And anyway, I got the part. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, this will be fun. I've never acted in anything, not counting my draft physical. Yeah. And... um <laughs> And I've been doing comedy on the road, so it should be, you know, piece of cake. Yeah. The part was the part of a wife abuser. And in, in a nanosecond, I realized there ain't nothing funny about this. Uh-huh. Nothing funny. Right. So I'm going to have to learn to be an actor. Uh-huh. 
And thank God there were people like Dabney Coleman and Marion Mercer and Greg Malavy, et cetera, who would take me aside and say, you know, you might want to think about this or you might want to try that. Oh, yeah. Or don't you think before he walks in the room, he would check his pocket to see if he has his keys? And you have no pretense. You're, well, you, need, you need the advice. Oh, my God. I was a sponge. Yeah. And, uh, and so I finally made it through. And then they kill your character. I, well, what has happened is I recall, and again, my recall, yeah. what's it worth? Yeah. Um, I was under contract to, I think it was NBC for a development deal or something like that. They were going to try to come up with something. And so I was loaned out to Mary Hartman for yeah. four months. Right. And um, so I was killed off at the end of that four months. Yeah. That very day, NBC, if it was them, um, said, we're not going forward. <laughs> right. So you can stay on Mary Hartman. I said, well, I can't fucking stay on Mary Hartman. I'm dead. Right. I have a Christmas tree through my thorax, right. for Christ's sake. And uh, so I went to Norman. I said, has anyone ever asked to come back as their twin brother? And Norman said, everyone asks to come back as their twin brother. <laughs> yeah. He said, but in your case, I want to do it. Yeah. He said, I got this idea for a thing called Firmwood Tonight. He said, which would be, what if the Johnny Carson show or a, a talk show, period, originated from this tiny town in Ohio where Mary Hartman took place? And, and Mary was, Hartman was a soap opera. Am I remembering yes, that way? Am no, I you're confusing right. it with soap? Did no. soap come after? Soap came after. Right. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, so he said, uh, the only problem is, he said, it's... I'd like you to do it. I think you, your character, your twin brother thing would be perfect. He said, but we're going to have a live audience, and I yeah. just don't know what you can do in front of a live audience. I've only seen you here. Yeah. And you're so like, I had I to put do- together a gig at the Roxy and invite, have my band back yeah. together, invited Norman Lear to come down and see the concert. Yeah. And halfway through it, I uh, stood up on stage, and I said, Norman, do I have the fucking gig? <laughs> And he says, you've got it. Finish your show. <laughs> and that was that was it. Yeah. And then on day one, I met Fred Willard. Oh, And, and the rest is history with him and I. Yeah. That was a great a great pairing. He's something else. Yeah. I've interviewed him a while back. Isn't he amazing? He's like a truly, like, oddly funny guy in yeah. a very earnest way. And he comes out of that West Coast uh, sketch troupe business. It's so funny, Mark, because I have often tried to think of what it is about him that's so singular, and that's that's the word. Earnest. Earnest, yeah. Earnest. There's a genuine earnestness to his completely inexplicable responses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, no, he just sells it so matter-of-fact. Yeah. Yeah, always. It's it's. I've often likened it to working with him is like following someone to an unknown destination, and the person refuses to use their turn signals. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Did you guys what, improvise a lot? A lot. Yeah, yeah. Because you just never know where. Like you, you're like the straight man. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was we had to improvise a bit because when Norman decided to do the show, he wanted to do ten a week. And to have ten scripted half hours a week, you know, right now I'm doing do that right now I'm doing one a week, right. one half hour scripted, and it's hard for the writers. You can imagine what that was. So, right, it couldn't happen. But I think it was again, it was a smaller business, a little looser. Yeah, yeah, and there weren't many as many people involved. There was right. not as much pressure as there is now. Right, and you know, and people had a tremendous amount of confidence in him. Right. So they cut it back to six a week. And but what were you, what were you going to do with ten a week? You just uh, st- uh, stockpiling, right? You know, right, right. End up having, but it was a daily show. Yeah, we ended up doing two a day, and uh, it was on every night. Yeah, every night. So you were, you were actually, I didn't realize that. So you did a lot of episodes because it didn't run. 
Yeah, and it didn't. It wasn't on that long. No, two years. Uh, Harry Shearer and I wrote all the monologues together, and uh, Alan Thick was the uh, producer. And um, and you're having real guests. We were having fake guests the first year in yeah. Fernwood. Then what happened was it got popular, and we would have people. Um, like let's say like yourself, well yeah. known that want to be on the show. Right. Well, we can't we can't say that your no your name is Joe Biffsblick because yeah. people are going to know it's yeah, Mark. Yeah. So, so we uh, changed the format where we said that um, we are now coming from Al Tacoma, California, the unfinished furniture capital of the world, uh-huh. and we're damn near the airport, and yeah. we could get celebrities w- whose flights were canceled. Right. And and so we'd have people like Carol Burnett and so forth. And, uh, oh, that's funny! And coming on as themselves, yeah. So that, well, so like for the first year, the, I mean, the, you must have like used every you know sort of bit playing character actor in Hollywood. Pretty much, we we had people like Kenneth Mars, who was unbelievable, uh-huh. and uh, uh, geez, yeah, yeah, just a never ending cavalcade. And the and the ones that could improv would be the ones we would keep. It's yeah. so amazing to me because, like, you know, this show, like, I knew about it and I remember seeing it a little bit, but I was, like, pretty young. And Mary Hartman, I remember seeing a little bit, but, like, this was, um, it was a definitive show. It was an important show. And I mean, and Saturday Night Live is really just getting off the ground and you guys are sort of way ahead. It sort of, like, was defining and I, and it's weird that people <laughs> forget about it. Yeah. Well, it was also 40 years ago. I guess. I mean, but it's sort of like it's weird that, you know, things repeat themselves and everyone thinks they discover things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, no, they they didn't. Yeah, no. (laughs) But it was groundbreaking when you did it. Yeah, it sort of felt that way. So and then, like that, begun that begins your acting career. Yeah. Now you got chops. Now you're you're in. Did a movie. Moving. And did a movie called FM. And- yeah, I remember that movie. And I think that, like, I think that WKRP kind of stole the movie in a way, and to build that from that. Right? A little. I don't know if you steal anything. Not steal, but it, like it was before WKRP became yeah, a TV show, yeah. and it was about a similar world. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. The, and that was the that was what Freeform, which we talked about earlier, became exactly the exactly. FM world. Absolutely. It became the you know the the hip thing that people listen to right. if you want to get away from FM or AM. Right. So so that was your first movie. Right, and then from there. Um, Started doing, um, you know, all the talk shows and yep. uh, got another movie. I actually got my uh, starring role in a movie called Serial. Yeah. And um, I've just kind of worked ever since. And what, like, so at the time, you know, like, because you're, yeah, you're one of those guys that's sort of like, you know, always around and always in things. And it, do you stop the music? I pretty much... Uh, kept the music going, uh, here and there, made a few albums. In fact, the album that got nominated for the Grammy was an album called Sex and Violins. And, uh, it was arranged by Frank Duvall, who actually played Happy Kind, the band leader on Firmware Tonight. Uh huh. And he, because he was a, basically a well-known, uh, movie composer. He had done, I think, Kit, Cat Baloo and, uh, Whatever happened to Baby Jane and all oh, these wow. great movies? He, he was and he just did a beautiful job. So Baby was, Jane Hudson. Yeah, there's always yeah, there's always a, a never ending uh, sort of uh, parade of uh, versions of Baby Jane Hudson in this fucking town. <laughs> but then, like you were you were on Roseanne for a lot. Then what happened was uh, 
I did a well. I did a series called Domestic Life that Steve uh, Steve Martin was a exec on, and, yeah. and we did a few episodes of that, and that didn't happen. Then I was kind of out of work, uh, just doing little guest shots. And Tom Arnold approached me on the street because we lived nearby, yeah. and he said, "We want you to be on the Roseanne show." And it was number one at the time. Yeah. And I said, "Whoa, yeah." He said, "We want you to play her gay <laughs> boss." I was just about to buy an electric blanket. It yeah. Right in time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And he said, "You'll be playing her boss, and he's gay." And I said, "Yeah, okay." okay. You know, nobody ever believed that Eddie Murphy was Gumby. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but, yeah, it's different. So yeah, it's different. I said, "But I don't want to play him swish." Right. You know, I, I think that would be insulting, and yeah. I, and I can't do that. I said, "If I can," I said, "I don't mind being an asshole." Yeah. I love being that. Right. That, that's fun. I said, "But I want to be." Uh, Respectful, yeah, and and uh, he said, no, that's exactly how we want to do it too, yeah. And so I ended up doing, I think, eight or nine years on that show. Was that fun? Yes, it was a lot of fun. I got to work with you know Laurie and, and John Goodman and just you oh, know Metcalf's the best. Oh my God, Laurie's unbelievable. Yeah, I've talked to her. Just yeah. like a real deal. She did you ever see that nine minute monologue she did in CK? For show? CK? Yeah, it's crazy. Is that not astounding? It's crazy. It's a, it's it, it it's mind blowing. Absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, I talked to her like I, you know, like it was a great conversation because she really put a lot of things into uh, perspective historically around Steppenwolf. I mean, she mm -hmm. was a founding member. Yeah, and they were all kids. It was really kind of fascinating, and she's just an, an amazing. I have actress. yet to see her in a stage performance, which I understand is just like yeah, I'd like light to. years ahead of. She just did one with uh, with Glenda Jackson. Yes. I think. What was it? Which play was that? Was oh it, God, it was, was it Three Women? Three Women, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, yeah, I mean, I, I, she's amazing. And, and what a funny show. And, and kooky Roseanne, who got mm -hmm. kookier and kookier. Yeah. But, uh, but she was always, uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I imagine, you know, to being on, on a show that that was that popular and, and, and that, you know, being around her, uh, you know, must have been pretty exciting. But it was a good set? Yeah, it was a good set. Yeah. yeah. Um, there were problems here and there, you know, but I just stayed at uh, arm's length. That's know? a great thing about just being a hired guy. Yeah. You, if you're, <laughs> you're like, if, where's if you're my script? The ombudsman, you know. Yeah. You come in there, where's my mark? Where's my right, script? Right, right. Yeah, I'll be in my trailer. Good when, morning, everyone. Good me, night, everyone. Yeah. Let me know when this is over. Yeah. Exactly. Whatever this is. Yeah. And then you did Sabrina with my friend Caroline? Yes, I did. That's... In fact, I just saw Caroline last week. How is she? She's well. She's okay. doing good. How old? Her kid's got to be older now. Oh, Eight or nine years old, probably. I think something like that. Yeah. yeah she showed me a picture. Oh, that's sweet. That's so, great. But that, that, that was your meal ticket for a long time. Sure was. And you yeah. like doing that? Yeah, I love doing that. That yeah. was that was fun. I was, you know, I'd had my watercolors in the trailer and I'd sit there and do paintings when I wasn't being needed. And that never stopped the painting? No, never. Yeah. No, that uh, I had shows started having a lot of shows starting around 1980. I think I uh, started showing again and uh, have not stopped. That's great. So, like, like I noticed that you, you know, we played a little guitar before. <laughs> There's that thing that 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 generally sort of creative spirit. You know what I mean? Like you're just one of those cats. Like you know, like like I like playing guitar. I don't do it publicly that often. You play very well. Well, thank you. I've gotten better. I practiced, uh, but uh, I've gotten worse. I don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, but see, for me, it's like it was never my profession. It's just always been my reprieve. Yeah, like, it's like my meditation. But like lately, like. For years, I'd do Conan O'Brien shows. I saw you play with Conan with you, the band. You saw that? I saw it. Oh, that you were kicking big, some serious butt. <laughs> that there. was a big night, man. 
I, I don't know. Like, There's it, something about I got to do that on the Tonight Show with BB King. Oh, I wow. got to trade fours with him on a blues, and the yeah. band joined in. And oh man, what it a was, rush! Oh wow, it's the best. Yeah, I got to play Green Onions with Booker T and the really? MG. Yeah, on the on the Tonight Show, it was great. What was like? What was that like being around Carson? Um, I love Johnny. I just yeah. thought he was a fabulous, fabulous guy. I just loved him. Did you? I, you did it a lot. Yeah, I. Um, I even guest hosted about a dozen times. Really? Yeah. How I got on the Carson show is c- kind of funny. They used to have what they called, um, I don't know, like a cattle call kind of thing on Friday afternoons, where the world who juggled or had a trained snake or anything like that sure. could come in and audition for. Uh, um, the show, yeah, and, and I went in, and uh, my manager, the same one that put me with Norman Lear, yeah, uh, said, "Go in and do a song, do one." And I had this thing I used to do called hors d'oeuvre. It was a it was a French song about saying instead of au revoir, saying yeah. hors d'oeuvre. And yeah. I decorated myself up with with a red and white check tablecloth over my lap, and yeah. I had grapes hanging from my guitar and a beret, and did the whole thing, a loaf of French bread, and and I did this number, and it used to kill when I was on the road, yeah, and. Afterward, uh, Freddie DeCordova called my manager and said, "Worst thing I've ever seen. Don't n- never send this man here again." So, about three weeks later, yeah. George Carlin is guest hosting, and when you're guest hosting, you can suggest or even, I guess, probably even require that certain people be your guests. Yeah. And he asked for me, and they said, "Okay." And so I got on the Carson show, and of course you know what I did—the grapes. And yeah, the, yeah, yeah, of course. I had to do it, and, and, it <laughs> yeah. and it did really well. Yeah, and then, um, geez, I think within a few months I actually was guest hosting. See, that's something like you know. I remember that all the time, and I remember like as a kid, you'd you'd have uh, your favorite guest hosts. You mm-hmm. know, I remember you know David Brenner used to do it all mm-hmm. the fucking time, and like you know yep. there were always different guys in that. That sort of um, gravitas and confidence of uh, a guy like Carson, who's going to be like, I'm going to take a couple weeks off, and uh, you know, just let uh, you know, who's on the list, yeah, and let them do it. Put the show on autopilot, basically. Yeah, yeah. And, and give these guys a shot. Shandling. Right. Yep. You don't see that anymore. People it, are too terrified. Mark, it's absolutely terrifying when you're backstage and the show's about to start, and Ed McMahon says, "Now here's." There's really only one word that follows, right? That. And then, and goes, when it's Martin. your name, you just <laughs> you just are terrified. And I realized uh, later on that my first guest was Steve Allen, and yeah, sure. who was the father of all this stuff. Yeah, and I think that may have been. Uh, just wise judgment on their part that if in fact I did mess my underwear or yeah, or yeah. worse go, in, go into in. some, they had a they had a host right there that could take over. <laughs> well, that was had you not met him before? Who Steve? Yeah, oh, no, I had met him before. I think. Well, it just seems like like that that time you were here and at that time you were working in the seventies that you know there was this interesting the thing I always loved about and what made me sort of drawn towards show business was a, a seeming camaraderie mm-hmm. of the people that were in it. And there were a, a select bunch of people. You know, there were the people you always saw on TV. There were the people you always saw in movies. But it still felt like a small community to me. Yeah. Uh, watching it. And it seems like you were here where that transition of the old guard and the new guard was happening, but the old guys were still around. Right. And and they, you know, and you'd see them and you'd get to know them probably. Well, I'll tell you what's striking me as odd is... And I was talking to both Eric Idle and Steve about this. Is that there was a time when we were just coming up? There was uh, there was George Burns and Bob Hope, right? And so forth they were and there, so on, and they were there. We've become that. 
Yeah, yeah, I, you I, know, and I I get people coming up to me and actually have used the word, and I'm not saying this with, uh, in terms of self praise. They use the word legend, and I realize the word legend can simply be translated using a calendar. Right. That if you are old you're not enough, dead. if you're old enough and yeah. not dead. And have stayed in the business, you're automatically a legend, regardless of the quality of what you've done. Right. But I think the the sad thing to me, uh, and I guess it's sad on some level, but on another level, it, it means a lot more opportunities for creative people, is that the 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 media landscape is so fragmented that, you know, there was a time with, like those guys, like Burns, George Burns, Bob Hope, uh, Jack right, Benny, right. where the entire country knew who they were. Absolutely. And they had a relationship with those guys. Yeah. So, you know, as they got older, you know, there was a nostalgia, but also a, a, a real human connection. Absolutely. That, that a majority of the people felt with these entertainers yeah. that you don't have anymore. No, that's true. Yeah. That is true. And it, it's sort of weird, like even someone like Steve Martin, who is, you know, a giant that you, you, you know the fact that there are, there's a whole generation of people that that are so either self-involved or or into their own thing that is available that like you know I, I don't know who he is mm-hmm. you know it, it, but I guess just that's just the cruelty of history on well some it level. also could be just the size of the industry has increased uh, sure just, yeah uh, exponentially no I yeah mean, oh yeah. yeah and what people can watch I mean you can't keep up with anything exactly anymore. but uh, but. It seems to me that you stay busy and that you're you're happy. You seem happy. I am. Yeah, I, I'm happily married. Wendy and I've been. She was my keyboard player, and uh, we've been happily married for almost forty years. Yeah, I got a thirty, soon to be thirty three year old daughter, Maggie. Yeah, who is uh, one of the producer writers of Family Guy. Oh yeah, and you've yeah. been on Family Guy, right? You've made yep. little appearances everywhere. Yeah, I did. Uh, I did. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I did The Simpsons once with George Carlin. Uh-huh. And I hadn't seen George in years. And yeah. this sums up George. I hadn't seen him in, literally in years. And when I first saw him on the set uh, at, for the recording, he said, Martin, he said, you know something? You and I have never been shopping for swimwear together. <laughs> <laughs> it was the most astounding statement. <laughs> George, I miss him terribly. Yeah, he was great. He was great. Yeah, he, uh, he, he even as he got older, he got a little more intense, but yeah. you know, he, you know, he, it meant something to him. You yeah. know, stand up absolutely. And, and, and speaking truth to power was something that, uh, you know, you, you don't see as much from, uh, uh, from, from people with real, um, ability to do right, it. Right, right. Like, he was singular, you he, know? He was unique. And who are the other guys you, that you still see? You see Eric and Steve and... Um, not a whole lot of people. I've oh, yeah. become very much a homebody. I sit there and watch my Cleveland Indians and Cleveland Browns, and my paint. wife and I watch Peaky Blinders and all uh-huh. the good stuff. And, yeah. Uh, and paint. Yeah. And what's your work schedule like? You, you, How many you got... You did the first season, so now you We wait? haven't finished the first season. We're, oh, half, we're halfway through. We've uh, done six. Yeah. We've got seven more to go for the first order. Then if the gods are willing, we will get the famous back nine, which will give us a full season. And, and this is on uh, which network? It's on Fox. So that's it. Like, so this is a big shot, and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a show that, that appeals to 
uh, a, a, a group of people that have watched TV forever. This is, I, I would say it does. I, it's very hard to know where the appeal is. I thought going into it <laughs> that it would have an appeal to like the the Golden Girls set. You know, the right, old, older what, people. They're not thinking that. They said the testing was younger younger people. So I have no idea what really. People maybe, watch maybe you're going to teach younger people to respect old people. Wouldn't that be something? That'd what, be, well, it's sort of interesting. Yeah, it would be something. But like I talked to uh, you know Michael Douglas is doing this thing with Alan Arkin that Chuck Lorre. I heard right. about that. It's interesting, man. You know, it's like it's weird because you've that's done, Chuck's. I didn't yeah, know that. It's it's Chuck's, and it's like it it seems almost like a passion project because wow. you know, he's a three camera guy. Yeah, and this is like a single camera feel. Wow. But but you know he's he's writing like he writes, and and when I was watching it because we've also we've all gotten so uh, sort of uh, sophisticated and condescending about the you know the nature of what TV is supposed to look like, and right. when you watch TV that is more like watching a movie. Mm-hmm. This is something that like it's not a live audience but they're doing that patter you know they're doing okay. it's not quite shtick okay. but it is you know sort of joke to joke but it doesn't ring false because it feels like neil simon almost okay like you know it's like uh, you know old jewish guys you know doing the thing mm-hmm. and you know you would think that there wouldn't be room for that now but you know it kind of was uh very endearing and good wow I look forward to that. Yeah, I mean, what's what's the house of comedy on your show? Um, broad, yeah. fairly broad, and um, and silly, mm-hmm. and not issue driven. And I I find it like really refreshing that we have basically um, the old. I play kind of an old ex hippie. Um, I'm the white guy. David Allen Greer is the African American. Leslie Jordan is blatantly gay. Yeah, and um, and out. And L- Vicky Lawrence is a, a lady. So we've got all of the identity groups right, right there. Right, and there has not been one identity joke. No issues. Right. No nothing. You and know? Judd Hirsch isn't in it. How's that? He must be working. <laughs> he may he may come in. We had Jamie Farr from, oh, yeah, from Mash. And, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he came in. Oh, that'd be Max Gale from Barney Miller. Sure, he came in. Really? Yeah. Well, this is what's nice. It's going to open things up to getting people like Fred, the guys we're talking about. Yeah, Tommy and Dickie. I'd like to get them on the Smothers Brothers. Are they th- are they talking about doing that? Yeah, we're talking about getting everybody that you know a lot of guest stars. But those like that whole generation, this, these like that's great. It'd be terrific. That's fun. Well, man, I'm I'm glad you're doing well. And and uh, all I can say is that I think you need to pick up your guitar occasionally. Yeah, I'd like to. What kind of guitar are you playing? A Gibson? I I have. Um, I got rid of my L five. I got rid oh, you of did? it. Yeah. Why? Why would you get rid of a guitar? Uh, I didn't need it. I'm at the I'm at the age where I'm trying to get rid of things. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't want my daughter to have to go through everything and say, "What am I going to do with this fucking thing?" Uh, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, like, you know, when you, I start thinking about that with the books, is like my my <laughs> just my brother going, like, "Should I throw this away?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you just got the Martin, huh? And now I got the Martin, and I have a Del Arte, which is a handmade archtop full size jazz guitar that I play. Oh, nice. Yeah, great talking to you, man. Same here. What a sweet guy. What a great talk. I really enjoyed talking to Martin Mull. As I said earlier, the new series he's on is called The Cool Kids. It's on Fox. It's on Friday nights at 8.30, 9.30 Central. Full episodes anytime at Fox.com. And, uh, and, and what a great guy. Really. Also, I'll be at the Ice House in Pasadena on December 2nd, Sunday at 7 p.m. Tickets, you can get them at WTFPod.com slash tour or IceHouseComedy.com. Okay, all right. How about some psychedelic wah-wah guitar? That seems weird to be where I'm at. I'll just do it for a minute for those of you who are still listening. 